0: So we've already mentioned that we are um, enjoying a time of family services as well. And uh, just again, to reinforce that we love having our kids with us. And I I know some of you parents are so excited. I know my wife is excited to have your kids home with you. Some of you are already counting down for the day when schools come back. Um, and, And I know this season, some of you are slowing down, right? Some of you are beginning to breathe for the first time in 2019, Others of you are actually accelerating because you've got another week or two before everything comes to a grinding halt. So much strength to you guys as you live out the season in your unique way. But we're doing this series, leading us as a church to Christmas. We don't want to just kind of get stuck into this religious routine where we do the Christmas thing because that's what's next on our calendar but we as a church, we want to make sure that as we get to Christmas, our hearts are prepared, our minds are prepared, our attention is on Jesus. So that regardless of whatever, whatever else we participate in, we can really experience the fullness of what Christmas is about. And what this series is going to try and do in every single one of us, and, and each sermon is going to be quite unique in its own way, it's is designed to actually move us. You see, Christmas is a powerful moment. It's a moment where God deserves our awe and our worship and our extravagance. But it's also something that needs to move us. Something needs to shift in us. Something needs to shift in our actions, in our devotion, in how we see God and how we relate to people around us. And so we're going to be kind of lighting little fires underneath your seats for the next three weeks, just pointing towards the way Christmas has impacted this world and how it needs to move us and to live and hope differently. And I also know that the closer we get to Christmas, we love using some of these words we see on the screen. And and they are all profound. We love using words like hope and peace and uh, peace on earth and goodwill to all men. And we love just thinking about all the positive vibes that Christmas brings to us. In fact, uh, I'm not a big fan grammar, but I went and I looked at the top 25 hashtags on Instagram. Now, I do think I need to press pause for those of you who have no idea what I've just said. All right, so uh, you've heard of Facebook. Well, Instagram is very similar. You load pictures up online, and then you get to tag these pictures with a hashtag. So for example, let's say you take a photograph of a family Christmas dinner. And you're like, I I want the world to see how awesome we are and how excited we are. And so you're going to load the photo on your social media profile. And then you're going to load a bunch of hashtags describing the meal. So you're going to say, hashtag ate like a pig. Hashtag I'm stuffed. Hashtag Christmas meal. Hashtag family. Hashtag fun. And what you can do is you can actually go and look at these different hashtags. And everybody who has tagged one of their photos with ate like a pig, You can go and you can see all those photos, whether um, it's a big meal or not. And um, what you can actually do as well is you can go and see the popularity of all of these hashtags. So I went and checked out the top 25 hashtags on Instagram. And and amongst, I'm not going to give you the top 25, but in the top 25, in fact, number one is hashtag love. And amongst the top 25, hashtag beautiful, hashtag happy, happy hashtag cute, hashtag summer friends, hashtag fun, hashtag smile. Another very popular hashtag with 119 million posts is hashtag blessed. In other words, what we're starting to see is Instagram is a place you go to show everyone else how awesome your life is, right? And, and, and kind of there's a subtext that comes with this. And the subtext is, that the blessed life is the happy life. That the blessed life is the fun life, the cute life, the beautiful life, right? And if that's your life right now, well, hashtag awesome, hashtag high five, all right? But imagine some of us had to get very real with what's really going on in our lives right now. Maybe some of you, if you had to hashtag your life, you'd say, hashtag still single. I'm not looking at anyone's hands. All right. Hashtag, will I make it to the end of the year? Hashtag, I don't many. (laughs) Hashtag, hopeful. Hashtag, leave me alone. Hashtag, sinking. Hashtag, struggling. And And so on one hand, Christmas is, is all about hashtag blessing and, and peace and hope and love and, and so much of what is going to come out of this entire series going into our Christmas days as well is going to be how this peace and this hope and this love does transform our world. But for maybe for some of you that just feels so foreign to you right now. And, and I just kind of want to warn you in advance For some of you, as we go into this message this morning, it may at first sound like a big wet blanket that I threw all over your Christmas, but I want you to stick with me because as we go through this message and as we look at the hope of Christmas, I I believe that the real hope of the real Christmas has more power to bring more hope to more people than sometimes the caricature of Christmas that we celebrate. You with me? And so there's a side of Christmas that doesn't always make it into our Christmas carols, our Christmas songs, the Christmas scenes around the shops, our Christmas messages and our Christmas cards. In fact, if we look at it closely, The more we look at God coming into a broken world, the more we see that the true nature of Christmas, it is all a struggle. Almost every single moment of it was a struggle. And so we get to the gospels that tell us the story. And we get to the gospel of Luke, and he starts to tell the story of Jesus. And he starts right at the beginning in chapter one, verse five, and he says these words. In the time of Herod king of Judea. And now you're like, oh, King Herod, he's a Christmas guy. He features on some cards. All right, he's a king. Great, move on. No, 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 we can't move on. You see, Luke is saying something. You see, King Herod meant that Rome was still in charge of Israel. King Herod was pretty much a puppet king put in place by Rome to rule Judea on their behalf. Now, King Herod was a megalomaniac, an insecure megalomaniac. In fact, he was called Herod the Great, and the reason why he was called Herod the Great was because he embarked on a massive building programme, and some historians believe to try and even rival Caesar himself. Some of you have been to Israel and you've seen his buildings where he built multiple Hippodromes and multiple amphitheatres and multiple cities and multiple palaces. And, and of course, this seems like a good thing, yes, but, but how did he build it? With slave labor and by taxing the people of Israel. Well, one of his big accomplishments was he also, to try and carry favor with the Jews of that time, he also rebuilt the temple. And, and in his mind, he wanted to rebuild it to a greater glory and a greater splendor than even the time of Solomon. And of course, he used slaves to do that. And he taxed people in order to do that. And it was indeed an incredible looking temple. However, somehow he still evaded the love and the joy and the admiration of the Jews of that time. But he was also a cruel man. Legend has it, or history has it, that he actually killed some of his sons because he was worried that they were conspiring against him. And here's another part of the story that you may know where King Herod heard news of another king being born somewhere. And he didn't want another king coming up, so he organized by royal decree that every baby boy under two years old was killed. You see how power-hungry and insecure he was at the same time. And so we're talking about thousands, if not tens of thousands of deaths of baby boys at the time of Jesus' birth. In fact, things were so bad that in Matthew 2, verses 13 to 14, we see this. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Go to another land. Get out of this country. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So Joseph and his family, he got up, he took the child and his mother during the night, and he left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. So that's just some insight into the political, economical situations around the time of Jesus' birth. Then we've got the circumstances of Jesus' conception. Now, when it comes to Jesus' earthly parents, Joseph and Mary, they were... No, basically, uh, uh, what do you call it? My brain has absolutely fried now. Uh, They were engaged to be married. But they were not yet married. And then they discover that God has done this miraculous thing and has caused Mary to become pregnant. Now, these days, uh, a baby out of wedlock is pretty much, no one notices that kind of thing anymore. In fact, in some circles, that's pretty much the norm. But in these times, In a highly religious culture, small town, this pretty much would have meant that Joseph and Mary would have been treated as social outcasts, no longer invited to carol services, no longer invited to meals around the table, treated as absolute social pariahs. Then we've got the circumstances around Jesus' actual birth. Now, most of you were born in a nice Clean hospital, multiple staff and facilities available to help you or your mom or your dad with every need. And so every time you cry, somebody put a dummy in you, somebody fed you, somebody put a blanket around you, somebody cuddled you, somebody changed the temperature of the air conditioning in your room, right? But Jesus was born in an animal's feeding trough. I don't even like touching my dog's bowl after she's been going at it. And, and this was because there was no place for them. And so quite literally, they were outside. I don't know if you've ever seen those movies, often kind of like, you know, Oklahoma type movies where people, there's a guy who's down and out and he's looking for a job. So someone on a farm hires him as a hired hand. Where do they make him sleep? Outside in the barn with the animals. That was how Jesus was treated at the time of his birth. And so here we've got Jesus surrounded by farm animals in a backwater town born to young, disgraced, impoverished parents. We know they were poor because when it came for the time for their temple sacrifice, they only brought two doves, which was the poorest sacrifice that one could bring to the temple. And so these are the kinds of things that ring a bell, but the tone of what I'm trying to share with you does not make it onto the Christmas cards. And so one could say that right from the beginning of his life, Jesus was born into tragedy. Jesus was born into helplessness, into defeat and weakness and into betrayal. You see, he didn't come into the world. God, who created this universe, didn't come into this world kind of screaming down from heaven with armies of angels and wealth and power and wild horses or whatever it would have taken to impress us. But rather, these are the circumstances with which Jesus started in many ways that set the tone for the rest of his life. Kind of blue collar guy, making wooden furniture for most of his life, as a traveling preacher, most of the time really struggling to just keep finances afloat. Homeless in, in the sense that he didn't own a home. Eventually being betrayed and rejected by those closest to him. And eventually dying a death on a cross. And so one of the truest realities of the real Christmas story is how the God of heaven enters in to your time of Struggle. And actually enters in to your difficulty. Some of you may know it comes up in a lot of our carols. That one of Jesus' titles that would be prophesied about Him coming to this world was that He would be called Emmanuel, which is a Hebrew way of saying God with us. And what we see in this Christmas story is that God with us doesn't only mean God with the successful, God with the victorious. God with those who've got it all together. God with those who are ending the year with a financial bump. God with those who have a hashtag awesome family. But what the story is showing us is that even in our difficulty and our trials and our struggles, God is with us. God is with us where it hurts. God is with us when we are broken hearted when we are in defeat and pain and betrayal. And so somehow the Christmas story is a story about hope and love and peace. And somehow laments and suffering are also part of the Christmas story. But it doesn't end there. So can you see how the scene's been set up? We've got King Herod, baby Jesus. All right, we've got a king who's trying to rival Caesar himself with his palaces, multiple palaces, with his cities and his armies and his wealth and his power. And this little poor, impoverished family. Now, normally, how would that story play itself out in the normal economy of life? Who's normally the winner in that kind of environment, in that kind of setup? At the surface, I mean, we know how the story works out. We are convinced about who Jesus is. But on the surface, this looks like an MMA guy versus Bambi, all right? That's what it looks like. But we know the story doesn't end there. Because Herod's palaces are lying in ruins as we speak. The Roman Empire faded away. And somehow, in the midst of all of this, the shame surrounding Jesus' birth could not snuff out his glory. And the terror of the infant side could not destroy the life of Jesus. And the poverty of Jesus' family couldn't hide the riches that Jesus would bring in salvation. And my point is this. When you look at what seems to be the enormity of your challenging circumstances and the overwhelming size of your disappointment and your struggle and your strife, and you're looking for God and all you see is a little baby and you're like, I I don't know if this is panning out. I I want you to know ahead of time that the greatest powers of darkness could not destroy Christmas and the ultimate meaning of the life and the ultimate death and resurrection of Jesus. Because what has remained out of the Christmas story What has remained is it is Jesus' kingdom that is still growing as we speak, not Herod's. It is Jesus' name that we are glorifying and we kind of look with a little bit of a sneer when we talk about Herod. It is Jesus' kingdom which outlasts and outplays all other kingdoms. It is Jesus' kingdom that is the everlasting kingdom. It is Jesus' kingdom that when every other kingdom on earth has ceased to be, his will continue to go and grow and flourish. And this is why Martin Luther, the German monk who became the the leader of, of, of such a great movement in the 1500s, he said, You must run directly to the manger and the mother's womb. Embrace this infant and virgin's child in your arms and look at him. Born, being nursed, growing up, going about in human society, teaching, dying, rising again, ascending above all the heavens, and having authority over all things in this way by looking at him. In this way, you can shake off all terrors and errors as the sun dispels the clouds. So what does this mean for you? I've got three thoughts to help us take something home with us this morning. And the first is this. It's okay to not be okay this Christmas. It's okay to not be okay this Christmas. And I don't know, maybe for some of you, things are awesome. Maybe for some of you, you're living the dream right now. But maybe for some of you, you've got the well-rehearsed smile to try and convince the people around you that everything's okay. Or maybe you walk around in such a way, you're trying to convince yourself that everything's okay. Maybe you're feeling the pressure to make everybody believe that everything is okay. Maybe you're feeling like if you admit that things are not okay, somehow you're admitting that Christmas is not enough for you, that God has failed you, that God isn't there, that God hasn't shown up, that God hasn't fulfilled His promises. And for that reason, you're feeling like it's not okay to say you're not okay. Now, I don't want to necessarily invite struggle and difficulty into our lives, but I want to encourage those of you who are there with how God enters your struggle. Psalm 51, verses 17, David writes, it is a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In fact, Jesus comes out the gate, he preaches his first sermon to thousands of people, defining what it means to be in his kingdom, defining what it means to, to follow him. And one of the things he says, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit let contrast that to hashtag blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So, so what does it mean to be poor in spirit? And uh, entire sermons have been, and books have been written about this. But at the very least, it's the realization when you come to the moment and understand that you've got nothing to offer God. And sometimes it takes challenging circumstances. Sometimes it takes hitting the bottom. Sometimes it takes really lying flat on your back for you to actually realize you have nothing to offer God. But the opportunity of that moment is that's when you are best able to receive what God has to give you. And that is why Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will receive the kingdom of heaven. And then, bless all those who mourn. And, and as I think about this and read about this, I mean, I believe God wants to be close to every single one of you, and God wants to comfort every single one of you. But sometimes when we're surrounded by all of our comforts and all of the things that you make our life so happy with, sometimes we're not dependent on God for His presence and His comfort. And for that reason, we're not leaning into Him. But when we are brokenhearted and we are mourning and our hearts are weeping, God promises that it is those who will be comforted by Him. No, I'm not saying, just by the way, that it's not okay to celebrate Christmas. I'm not saying it's not okay to be full of joy and be full of such of the wonderful moments that we have around Christmas. And I pray that that all of you do, in fact, have those things. But what I am saying is that the blessing of Christmas is not reserved for those who have it all together. And the blessing of Christmas is not reserved for those who have a grammable life whose life is hashtag awesome and blessed and healthy and wealthy. In fact, if anything, the blessing of Christmas is for those who are not and who know it. And everything about the story is trying to convince us that that is where God comes in and walks a journey with you. And that is where he starts bringing all the gifts of peace and love and hope. And so it's okay to not be okay. But the second thought I have for us this morning is that we need to learn to celebrate the presence. We need to learn to celebrate the presence. You see, I I, I don't know about the rest of you, but I think that sometimes God comes in forms that we miss. Maybe this story rings a bell with some of you, but early on in my marriage, I started to realize that um, when it comes to life and when it comes to ministry and when it comes to just... All of life, I tend to see the macro picture, and for that reason, I sometimes miss out on the micro picture. And that plays itself out in our home in the following way. Hey, love, have you seen the scissors? Yes, they're in the, front, they're in the top drawer. And the minute I say the words, no, they're not. I have looked. I promise you, something in the universe sends those scissors straight to that top drawer. So I've learned over the years to go, okay, look, I'm looking for the scissors. I'm going to look in all the common places, all the less common places, and then I'm going to look again, and then I'm going to look again, and only then, hey, love, have you seen the scissors? Oh, yes, they're on the dining room table. And I promise you, the minute I say the words, no, they're not, I've looked three times. Someone goes and puts them right there. And in the same way, I I think sometimes we look for God in our lives. And because we have a certain set of expectations of what His presence should look and feel like, we miss the God who is actually there. And don't feel bad about that. I mean, in the Bible, we see the story of Elijah. Elijah is in a desperate moment of his life. A desperate need of encouragement by the presence of God. And so he's looking for God, and this incredible wind comes, the kind of wind that turns up mountains and rocks, and he's like, "Surely God is in that." No, 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 God was not in that. Then this earthquake comes and shakes the land. Surely God is in the powerful earthquake. No, God was not in there. A mighty fire comes, and we all know how God comes in fire, right? Surely God's in the fire, and God is not in the mighty fire. And it was only after that, in the still, in the quiet. That Elijah could lean in and hear the still small voice of God. Looking for God in certain ways and missing the reality of his presence. Then we've got Jesus walking around in Galilee. As I alluded to before, so many people were expecting the Messiah, that this new Jewish king to come in with might and power and armies and wealth. And for that reason, so many people missed the carpenter's son. And then we come back to the birth of Jesus, where surely the birth of Jesus should come with huge pronouncements. And yes, while heaven did shout and heaven did celebrate, there were only a few people who were privileged enough to participate in that. Amongst them were the poorest of society, pretty much outcasts of society, shepherds. A few little shepherds got to participate in what was actually happening While most people just went around life as usual. A short while later, a few kings or wise men came and and they too knew what was actually going on. But everybody else was carrying on, waiting for this big moment and missing what is actually happening. And so the challenges I know that I'm sure every single one of us in this room are desperate to see God acting and moving in our lives. And some of you, the emphasis is on desperates. And I think what Christmas does for us, it's gonna train us to see God in ways that we haven't always looked for. And we're gonna learn to be shepherds. And we're gonna learn to be kings or wise men that regardless of what everybody else is saying and expecting and hoping and trusting God for, we actually learn to see the king who is there. And then we celebrate him and we worship him. And I believe that will change everything. See, sometimes God does come in and, and change our circumstances miraculously. But more often what we see in, in my life and, and your life and throughout history and throughout the Bible, in fact, is that God comes in and he changes you Because he gives you himself. And that is what we need to train ourselves to see and celebrate the presence. And so we're going to learn that it's not okay, that it is okay to not be okay this Christmas. We're going to learn to celebrate the presence. And finally, we're going to learn to lean in this is where we're going to learn to live these truths out in other people's lives. If you ever want to know, what does it mean to be a Christian? It's very easy to understand, very difficult to do. As far as understanding it goes, just do to others what God has done to you. That's what it means to be a Christian. Easier said than done, right? But if Christmas is a moment where God entered a broken world, our broken world, and He came in in a very subtle way, but in a way that ultimately outlasted evil and overpowered evil and suffering. The challenge is how do you enter other people's pain? Other people's struggle, other people's lives who are not celebrating the same way that you're celebrating this Christmas. You see, I think that maybe the most Christmassy thing that you can do this season is to give somebody else who is struggling the presence of your presence, And the gift of your love and and just being there. And maybe not with a whole lot of presence and a whole lot of advice, but just being there. And being a point of love and peace in their lives. And and so I just want to ask you a couple of questions. Who do you know in your life who is struggling? In your life group, in your ministry team, in your neighborhood? Who do you need to invite around the table? Who do you just need to... Organize a coffee date with and just sit with and and be with. And maybe that's the most Christmassy thing that you can do. So here's the thing. I don't want any of you to, in inverted commas, struggle this Christmas season. I, I, I wish it is all fun and joy and hashtag blessed and hashtag awesome life for every single one of you. But even more than that, Even more than that, I don't want any of you to miss the presence of Jesus in this season. And regardless of your circumstances, and maybe especially in light of some challenging circumstances, I want to pray with everything in me that God allows you to see Him. And that the real Christmas brings you real hope. So let us pray. Father, I, I don't know if, if there's anyone in this room that is not struggling somewhere, that is not desperately looking for your presence, that is not in need of the real life giving breath and hope of you, Jesus. And Father God, I, 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 I only we know who is just appearing like we got it all together, trying to convince ourselves. And, and maybe if I convince myself that i got it together, I can feel like Christmas is for me too. And Father God, I pray that you break that wall down, you break that lie down. And I pray that you open up our eyes to see and celebrate the presence of the real Jesus who enters a broken world, who was persecuted from the day he was born, who is well acquainted with poverty, who is well acquainted with rejection, who is well acquainted with isolation, well acquainted with betrayal. And So regardless of what our particular struggle is, Father, Holy Spirit, allow us to see you and if we've been looking for you in the big things, Lord, if we've been looking for you in the earthquakes and the fires of our lives, I pray that you help us see the still small presence of Jesus among us. And That God is with us. God is with me. God is with you. And so encourage us, Holy Spirit, We pray this in your name. Would you continue ministering in our lives, Father, throughout this week, in Jesus' name, amen.